are reading before us. Not so much about the first verse that we're going to be focusing in on, verse 18, but rather the, next, the subsequent couple of verses and how it relates to the end of the chapter and also information we get in 1 Peter chapter 4 and information that is brought into this passage from 2 Peter chapter 2 and other passages. And so because we have so many different views, I want to talk about what those are. Hopefully we'll have time to do that, but I don't want it to take away from the real strength of the argument that Peter is going to be using here in our passage today with regard to uh, comprehending our association with Christ in the, in the realm of suffering. That we have him as an example, and as we talked last week, that we are filling up the suffering of Jesus Christ, that we are making it complete, fuller, uh, by our addition to that, by demonstrating that it is such a substantial effect upon us that we are willing to suffer because of the glorious salvation that his suffering has provided for us. And so Christ, remember, warned his disciples, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. How they maltreat me is how they should maltreat you. And when that's not the case, then you should be a little concerned that perhaps uh, you're not walking in a righteousness that exposes the darkness of their evil. And of course, we in our community that have suffered so little, that warning just kind of hurts a little bit. Maybe we are not walking in sufficient righteousness before the world that they hate us enough uh, because we, are, we look, talk, act, behave, and even think like they do, by and large that there's very little difference between who and what we are, how we live, and who and how they live. And so we um, are on the bad end of this equation because we are on the part that aren't suffering, and we congratulate ourselves sometimes for praying for our brethren who are suffering rather than recognizing that really they are the examples that we should be following. They are the ones we should be looking to and say, well, what are they doing that we aren't? And we often fault their government. We fault their culture. And that somehow our government and our culture are more righteous than those governments and cultures. That's why they're suffering more than we're suffering. And we don't ever turn around and look at ourselves and say, well, is it our fault? Have we just accommodated our culture so much and we have defined American culture or Western culture as Christian, and therefore it is okay for us to move freely within it uh, and disregard Scripture that would make us very evidently different. That we can call out things in our society that are wicked. And I want to give you an example because many of the people in God's Word lived in a culture that was godly. That culture and that government was called Israel. Remember them? Called of God, um, had a temple of God in their capital, uh, and yet God sent prophet after prophet to live righteously. And what happened? The people hated them. And so don't tell me that's because we're living in such a great country that we don't have any opposition historically to our Christian message, because that's really that's not the case. 
The challenge really is to recognize that we have diminished our Christianity right along as our society has degraded. Our Christianity has degraded a few steps behind it, but right along the same rate. And we are largely indistinguishable from the world, even the Western world, in terms of our personal righteousness. The sense of suffering is not there because we have simply acquiesced to what the world is doing around us because it's a Christian country. And that same excuse could be used by the Israelites. And the prophets came and disrupted that, and they hated them. When confronted with the truth of God's word, that all the things they took for granted and that they were just doing on a daily basis, yes, they were serving God in the synagogue every Sabbath, <clears throat> maybe in the temple, they were also serving false gods all week. And in many respects, that's what we do. And so, when we talk about suffering and the absence of it, it is a warning to us that there might be something wrong with our Christianity when the world doesn't hate you as they hated Christ. That we are called to a radical level of, of righteousness that says this is the culture, this Bible, this scripture is what tells me what my culture is. And it is, it is universal. That is, no matter where I go on the earth, I should be able to live with my brethren and we should all be obeying this scripture and manifesting in our lives and in our subculture called the church. And so we've talked about the suffering and the necessity of it, not because we want to suffer. Jesus Christ didn't want to suffer the cross, did he? Gethsemane tells us that. But we see the necessity of it when we look at the world around us and say, well, they need a light. And they don't need a flickering little on and off dim light. They need a bold, bright shining light of righteousness to call them out of the darkness that they are in. And this is what precipitates the response of evildoers who don't want to be drawn to the light to try to eradicate it. And of course, this has already been prophetically told to us in Daniel, and this is one of the things you would see in the end times within the entity that would um, be the last empire on earth, that this is exactly what, how Satan would persecute them, is by wearing them down, not by violence, but by seduction. And that's what we are at the tail end of, so much so that Christians from 200 years ago would hardly recognize how you live as a Christian walk. And not just because of the technology, but because of the priorities that we have in our speech, in our life, in our activities and our entertainment things and even our worship so we come now to understanding that we are to be associated with christ and his suffering let's go to verse 18 and read this portion of scripture it says for christ also suffered once for sins the just for the unjust that he might bring us to god being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the spirit by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah 
while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. We're going to stop there this morning. Christ suffered for us once for all. He did it in a, a, once for sins. He covered that. We understand that he looked beyond the suffering. He looked beyond the disgrace of it. Uh, we are told in Hebrews, and for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He endured it. It wasn't something he enjoyed doing. He endured it, though, with joy, and there's a big difference between those. As we consider that I can endure suffering and still have joy, even though I don't enjoy the suffering, is because we have a goal, an objective on the other side of that. For Christ, his objective was to remove your sins, to pay the price for your sins, to cover them by his shed blood. And that concept, that principle, that, that uh, goal enabled him to endure because he saw on the other side of that suffering a great joy waiting for him. Every mom who has delivered a baby understands that, right? You endure great suffering <laughs> of the process of birth, but you understand that the goal, the objective on the other side of that is a great joy. In fact, we call them a bundle of joy. This is my bundle of joy. Um, well, they all call it, this is my bundle of suffering, which is really what it is. That's what was entailed in bringing that forward into this world. And that's not the end of the suffering either, because now you've got to raise the little brat, right? Okay, the little angel fallen. Anyway, so you've got to raise this child who is a little heathen because they haven't accepted Christ as their Savior, so they're little heathens you're raising, uh, and hopefully they'll become adults and believers in Christ along that route. So we understand suffering to endure that with joy beyond that. We have examples all around us. Um, you endure suffering at work because you get paid at the end of the week. Would you keep going to work if there's no pay at the end of the week? Probably not. Well, we, the athlete trains, and the training is not fun. It is something you endure for the joy of the competition. And so when we look at these, we have lots of examples. Well, Christ suffered for something much more important than the temporal things of this earth. He suffers for the forgiveness of the sins for all men. And so as Christ suffered, we join him with a perspective, I will endure it because I have an objective beyond that. It's not a personal objective. We talked about that last week. We're not doing this for our personal interests, but for the interests of others. Jesus Christ died for others. And we suffer with a perspective that me enduring suffering with joy is a necessary part of bringing others to Christ. Until they see the commitment and the effect of Christ in your life, not by your comfort, but by your confidence in the midst of suffering, that will draw them to Christ. We have too many times set up um, 
in front of people, uh, successful people, as advocates of the gospel. And by successful, we mean successful in this world. It's terms. So he put up famous people, rich people, powerful people, that if they get saved, wow, this is really going to impact, and we're going to really, you know, and so we want to get this professional athlete that's got a great following, uh, this this uh, actor or actress has a great following on whatever social media. Boy, if they come to know Christ, think of all the people that will be hear the gospel from that. And what an upside-down message from what the Bible says. It's not the ones that are doing well in this world that give the real evidence of the power of Christ. It is really the ones that keep serving him no matter the price, even if they lose everything. I'm going to follow Christ. In that sense, it's almost better to see the, the athlete that's been rejected, the Hollywood person that can't get roles anymore. Now they become a better picture of what it means to have a confidence in Christ to endure suffering. But with a purpose that isn't self-concerned, but concerned with others. And this, of course, is Christ's suffering. He was the just one. He is suffering for the unjust. We are not suffering now. Did he suffer at the hands of the unjust? Yes, but he also suffered for the unjust. Recognize that. So the very people that were yelling out, crucify him, Jesus Christ was ready to die for them, even though he died by their hand. And likewise, we should anticipate that the very people that are causing our suffering, that are instigating it, are the very people that we are suffering for. For they are the ones who know what they put you through and have seen your confidence in Christ, that you endure it with joy, that you do it without complaining, you do it without trying to get back, no revenge, no vindication, nothing. You just take it. And they're the ones that know what you've taken because they're the ones that have dished it out. And they're the ones that you can reach with the gospel through suffering. See, Jesus Christ was the just one who died not just by the unjust, but for them. So Christ continues to be our example that he might bring them to God, us to God. But we're also reminded about a second facet of this suffering, and that is that it's temporal. It's just temporary. The end of the verse says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And I say, well, Christ knew he was going to be raised from the dead. Doesn't make dying on the cross any easier. The agony was still there. It was evident. The pain was there. And as much as we talk about the physical pain of what occurred to his body uh, in the process of the trials uh, and the cross, and all that was there, uh, that pales in comparison to what he suffered in that time of darkness of being separated from his father. Throughout the Gospels, what do you say? I go to my father. My father, I came from my father. I'm going to my father. I do my father's will. Over and over again, that was his perspective. He had this 
this intimate communion with his father, and when that was broken for the first time in his existence. Oh, the agony of our Savior for our salvation. But it was temporary. Because he was the just dying for the unjust, God accepted his sacrifice and he rose from the dead and was highly exalted. And we find his arrival in heaven in that exalted state that transformed heaven and then transformed the earth in those who trusted and followed after him and will eventually physically transform the earth when he comes and rules and reigns. And thus, that one that was slain by man, God raised from the dead, that we might have life. And this is throughout the book of Acts. You read through the book of Acts, you cannot miss it, how in the sermon after sermon, the repetitive phrase, you crucified him, God raised him from the dead. And they just point that finger, you crucified him. And when you read that, don't just put it in the historical perspective that they crucified Christ. Because technically they didn't. They just yelled out, crucify him. And the Romans crucified him. They can take a couple of steps away from it and say, well, we didn't really crucify him. The Romans did. No, take those phrases to heart and recognize that when the, when the preacher preaches, you crucified him, God raised him from the dead, that that you means you. It was your sin, remember? He died once for sins. It was your sin that he died for. You crucified him. God raised him from the dead. And that was in every recorded sermon of Peter. You crucified him. God raised him from the dead. And it shouldn't surprise us to find it here in 1 Peter in his epistle. He's going to make that same statement. He died... He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And now we begin to work on our Christology a little bit. Hopefully the foundation of the gospel message we are well familiar with. But let's take it a little bit further and look at this relationship that's here. We talk about God raising from the dead, and that is an accurate statement. And we recognize, hopefully, the role of Holy Spirit in that not only Christ's resurrection, but also his incarnation. When he came to earth, what happened? What were we told? What was going to happen to Mary? Well, the power of the Holy Spirit was going to overshadow her so that what was going to be conceived in her was going to be divine. It was going to be sinless. Not that Mary was sinless, but that what she would conceive would be sinless, hence the power of the Holy Spirit there. And so we find the Holy Spirit was present there at the inception of the incarnation. He's there at the uh, resurrection as well. He says through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is there. And this dependence upon the Holy Spirit we don't often think of Jesus Christ being dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Because we still want Jesus to be God. And he is. But we want him to act like a God. And exercise independently all the power of deity. 
Because we don't always recognize that that's exactly what he surrendered. Was all rights and claim to exercising his deity. All of it. Philippians 2 says he emptied himself and became a servant. What did he empty himself? What does empty mean to you? Does it mean half full? Does it mean quarter full? I think we all know what empty means. Empty means he gave it all up. He surrendered it entirely. That for his time on earth, from the beginning of the conception in Mary, all the way to the resurrection, he was fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit in his life. Holy Spirit initiated this and initiated that. From beginning to end, we have a bookend. What about in between? Was the Holy Spirit active in his life? Oh, yes. Was he dependent upon the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. And this becomes critical to us to understand how we endure suffering. So Jesus Christ is here on earth. Uh, He gets through the temptations. So he's confronted by Satan. He engages Satan with God's word. And and we say, well, what was going on right there? Well, that basically was the front end of his earthly ministry years. But we forget sometimes how he got into the place of temptation. It says the Spirit of God drove him into the wilderness. I don't know that Jesus really wanted to go out there either. But he was led by the Spirit of God to go out there and be confronted, to be challenged by Satan himself in the same realm that we are, Hebrews says, yet without sin. He was fully tempted, yet without sin. Who did he rely on? Not only God's Word, he relied on Holy Spirit to encounter temptation and to get victory over temptation, including the tempter. That it is certain that Jesus Christ, from his baptism, where we find the Holy Spirit coming down as a dove, that Spirit, we think, well, the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to have all these wonderful things, and it's going to be all smiles, and, and it's going to be, you're going to have all these experiences and wonderful emotions. And I say, well, Jesus didn't. When the Holy Spirit came down upon him, he got driven into the wilderness and tempted. Where is that on your list of spirit-filled activity? Oh, no Pentecostals want to talk about that too much, do they? But that's the first evidence of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life. He got driven into the wilderness, tempted by Satan himself, and had to get through that, and then he could come and be ministered to by angels. We like that part. We don't like the in-between part. So Jesus Christ was fully dependent upon Holy Spirit all the way through. And when it confronted with the accusation that you are doing all these signs and wonders, this is well into his ministry. He's been ministering for some time. People are getting healed. Demons are being cast out. All this activity is going on. What is he confronted with? He's confronted with a statement saying, you do this by the power of Beelzebub. That's the accusation, correct? And Jesus Christ counters that statement uh, with a logic argument that works really well. But also he says, be careful. You're committing an unpardonable sin. What's the unpardonable sin? Is not against Jesus. 
Who is it against? It's against Holy Spirit. You want to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you are committing an unpardonable sin, and there's a reason why it's unpardonable, and that's also logical, and that's because he's the one that convicts you of your sin, of God's righteousness, and of the judgment to come, so that you can be saved. You blaspheme against him. You work against him, who is your number one access and initiator of your salvation. You can't be saved. We should tell you something. If people aren't convicted, they can't be saved. You are unpardonable if you are never brought to godly sorrow. Romans says godly sorrow leads to repentance. And we don't want people to feel bad, so we don't tell them that part. We tell them, don't you want to go to heaven? And we're not producing, or we're not even helping the Holy Spirit in the, in the process of bringing about godly sorrow. The prophets understood that. The disciples understood that. You crucified him. You bunch of killers, murderers. You murdered the just one, the holy one. You're guilty. Do you hear it? And it says they were cut to the heart. Well, how were they cut to the heart? Not only by the message of Peter, but by the Holy Spirit convicting them. You blaspheme, you work against the Holy Spirit, the one who convicts you to cut you to the heart, you're working against your own salvation. You can't be saved without conviction. That's why it's unpardonable. Pretty simple. But I want you to notice that Jesus Christ was 100% giving glory in that instance for all of his miracles to Holy Spirit. So the works that I'm doing aren't my works, they're my Father's work, and they're done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why when he comes to his disciples, he says, oh, you're going to do greater works than I did. Why? Because you're going to have the same access to the same source of power that I'm accessing here on earth, Holy Spirit. And so if you accuse me of doing something in the name of Satan, and I'm doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit, you're blaspheming not me, but Holy Spirit. Because it's his power that's displayed here. When you see the deaf hearing and the lame walking and the blind seeing and the dead walking, it's Holy Spirit's power through me. So we see that Christ was so fully man that he could do nothing outside of the Holy Spirit. That's how far he emptied himself, 100%, of every prerogative to his divine power and authority, which is why while on earth he says, well, I don't know when I'm coming back. That was an honest answer. Was Jesus not omniscient? Not when he has fully emptied himself. He doesn't have access to that. He has chosen to humble himself for you. His suffering is that point. We talked about humility as a, necessary, as a necessary quality of everyone that's going to endure suffering. Because if you're proud, you're going to say, I don't deserve this. Poor me. You're either going to complain one way or the other way. You're going to complain about it. It requires humility to endure suffering. Christ humbled himself 100%. Even to the point of the cross. And so we find this dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And I would contend with you that as we get into the next few verses, this is exactly the relationship that Peter wants to share with you. 
So let's get into this passage. I have a little time, and we're going to have to take some time because of all the weird things that are taught from the next couple of verses. So Jesus Christ suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. He had a, not his own, all that we already studied. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And now we get into verse 19, same sentence. By whom? Who are we talking about? We'll just stop right there. Holy Spirit. We're still talking about the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about the relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and we're going to look at it not only in terms of the events of his death, burial, resurrection, but also historically. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine laws of suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few that is eight souls were saved through water. And we're going to stop right there. Oh, sorry about that. And we're going to talk about this. So here's the, some of the views that are out there about this. Number one, that Jesus went to hell between his death and his resurrection, and he preached to one of two groups. Either he preached to fallen angels, or he preached to people who lived during the time of Noah who hadn't thought of or conceived of the gospel. Um, wrong. Why are they wrong? Both of those views. Uh, number one, you don't preach to fallen angels because they are irredeemable. They cannot. They, they are cannot be saved. They cannot be redeemed. Uh, they they are completely corrupted. And because, and I have reasons for that to explain that to you, but I'm not going to take the time today. So they are not redeemable. And some people say, well, this is a different word for preach than Peter used in two other places. So it really means that he just made this declaration. Uh, why? Why would he make a declaration between his death, before his resurrection, to the fallen angels? Because at that point, as far as they were concerned, Satan succeeded. Correct? Would you be correct in that? He's dead. He's here in the land of dead. And he's proclaiming to us that he died. Well, so what? Everyone died. But that's a, you can't believe how many people believe this or hold to this and teach this and write books about this. Uh, I didn't look on the internet too much. Look up, I'm sure there's lots of people on the internet. So, he's there. so either he's preaching to the fallen angels, I don't know why. Or he's preaching to dead people who have been in Hades, uh, I assume on the side of punishment and not on the side of, of Abraham's bosom, that's paradise. And I ask myself, why? Why did he go and do that to the spirits in prison? Now, some would contend that this is really referring to people who uh, had some kind of faith in Jesus before it all happened, and certainly we have evidence that he descended into Hades, took, took captivity captive, and that therefore he preached not to the punishment side of Hades, but to the paradise side of Hades to take them with him. And I have much less problem with that, that he went and preached to there. But then that would mean that they were disobedient, and why only those before the flood? In verse 20. 
Because there are a lot of Old Testament saints, right? After the flood, I'm pretty sure. And so that's really not entailed here at all. That's really not what Peter is, is really driving at. I would tolerate that position a little bit more, but I think it doesn't have a lot of weight in the passage at large. And of course we have, if we jump down to chapter 4, verse 6, let's, in First Peter here, let's jump down. It says, For this reason the gospel is preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. We say, well, what's this preaching to the dead all about? And is that, again, talking about Jesus going down and emptying Abraham's bosom? Those people have already had a faith, and it was not, and it was sufficient faith. They were waiting for their redemption. And there's no evidence that they needed further preaching. What happens if they didn't accept Jesus? Do they get they have to great, jump the great abyss and go into the lake of, of uh, lake of fire, but the, uh, to hell? No, that's not what's being communicated. Remember the context is, Jesus died for you, rose again by the power of Holy Spirit. He endured suffering for the joy of what it accomplished, removing your sins and having the work of the Holy Spirit resurrect him, exalting him. I humble myself, God exalts me. And there's this relation between Jesus and Holy Spirit that we lose track of, that somehow it only happened while Jesus was on earth during the incarnation and to the resurrection. But for Peter, that's not the case. So let's work our way through this a little bit, and this might be a little bit heavy on the English. Um, I would recommend that you um, diagram these sentences a little bit, find out who you're talking about, who's doing what, where, and how, and with whom. And so, by whom, it means that the Spirit of God also, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And this is a past tense event that the Spirit of God, the same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, preached... In the times before Noah, to disobedient people. That is, that the same message has been all through history, that the message, the revealer of God is Jesus Christ. Correct? So whenever anyone had an encounter with God in the Old Testament, we understand that to be pre-incarnate Christ. So usually by the term of the angel of the Lord. Or just God. I saw God. I talked with God. I met God on the mountain. I met God in the wilderness. I, this is pre-incarnate Christ. No man has seen God any time, the Father. Uh, the only begotten, he is revealed. he's the revealer of God. Not only in his condition as a human, but in his pre-incarnate condition as God, eternal. So we saw, so every encounter with God that you find in the Old Testament is Jesus Christ before he became man. And so we call him God the Son, or the angel of the Lord. Including during the time of the flood and prior to that. So who is the preacher during the flood? Prior to the flood, as God was holding back his wrath, God is ready to judge people. How long did he wait between when he says, I'm going to judge these people, they're just so wicked, and Noah got done with the boat? It was a hundred years. A hundred years, God had already decided he was going to punish them and waited 
for a hundred years. Who preached for a hundred years? A guy named Noah. A guy named Noah preached for a hundred years. By whom did he preach? Well, Noah preached by the same Holy Spirit that Jesus preached. And this is kind of important. By the same Holy Spirit that you preach by. The Spirit of God preached to these souls that are now in prison because they rejected that preaching. So it's not that he went and preached to them while they were in hell, but rather that they are dead now, but they were preached to then by the same Holy Spirit with the same message of redemption, which is focused on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the message of Christ, was preached to them in that day by the same Holy Spirit in the days of Noah. How successful is Noah? <clears throat> this is really important. How successful was Noah? It tells you in the verse, you know it, how successful was Noah? He saved eight people, including himself. Eight. That was it. He preached for a hundred years and got seven converts, his wife, his sons, and his daughters-in-law. It's a pretty small church, but it had lots of animals. So it was a busy church, but not because there are a lot of people, just a lot of animals around. It's kind of like my life, isn't it, now? For a hundred years he preached. God was patiently waiting, ready to judge. And the power of the Holy Spirit was on Noah, and the message he was preaching was one of repentance and trusting in God's provision, Jesus Christ. Yes, it was still future. We preach a Jesus that was historical. They preach a Jesus who is still in the future. But it's the same thing. We're going to trust in God. The blood of bulls and goats is not going to take away sin. And Abel knew it, but he had faith that the promise of God made to his mom that out of a woman would come a seed, really weird statement, Biologically incorrect, but theologically very correct. And he will deliver you. So we point to that sacrifice that's coming. And that was the message that was preached then. Those people rejected that message and they are in Hades, prison, the place of punishment. They are there today still. Have they never been preached to? No, they were preached to. For a hundred years they were preached to by the power of the Holy Spirit in a man named Noah, and none of them listened. They were the disobedient ones. We are not here talking about the fallen angels, and we are presaging 2 Peter 2, where he is going to talk about fallen angels, and Jude, where they do talk about the fallen angels that did not keep their abode with God. And we want to insert that here. And it has no business being here. We're talking about the people who lived in the past, had the same access by the same Holy Spirit that worked through Noah, that Peter saw working in Jesus, and that is now working in us. You've just been given a historical perspective on the work of the Holy Spirit that this is the 
power by which we endure suffering. This is the power by which we preach the cross. This is the power by which we live righteously and godly in this present world while looking for the next. You've just been given a historical lesson, past, present, future. That this is the, the Holy Spirit and the message of Jesus Christ are linked. They are not disassociated from each other. They have always been intertwined with one another. They are always interdependent upon one another. The message of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, the provision and the power are always together. And so, by the Holy Spirit, he went, preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. All right, so when they were disobedient, uh, when once the divine law of suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, and only eight people got saved. They're in prison now and persist in that condition. And we can bring the same concept into chapter 4, verse 6. The gospel was preached to those who are dead. Today they're dead, but when the, they were alive, they were preached to. And the difference between them and the people of Noah's day is that they believed what they heard. That they might be judged according to men in the flesh, that means they died. Men hated them and killed them. We're talking about martyrs here in verse 6. They are now dead, but they were preached to when they were alive. And when they were alive, they accepted Christ, and, and though they were slaughtered in the flesh, what happens? They live according to God in the Spirit. Now, I'm not sure that that shouldn't be capitalized there, that S. Because it's the same Spirit that we're talking about in this whole passage. The one that raised Jesus from the dead. And this is really a complete unit from verse 18 all the way to 4-6. I'm dividing into like seven sermons or something. No, not, not that many, but no, maybe. And we're dividing all these sermons, but it's really a complete unit. He starts off there. He says, this is how Christ suffered. This is how he endured it. This is how he overcame it. And where do we end this section in verse 6? Here's how men have suffered. Here's how they have endured it. Here's how they're going to overcome it. Same Exact access. Same exact one you have to depend upon, and that is the Holy Spirit. Christ depended upon him. Noah depended upon him. We need to depend upon him. And maybe we only save eight, seven, outside of ourselves. Maybe just a few come. But those few will be delivered. Make no mistake. Those few are worth it. A hundred Years of preaching while building. A hundred years. And all you saved was your family. You ever wonder if just one other person had come and said, I'm going to help you. I think this is happening. And it was nine people. But they all had that access. Because Noah preached by the power of the Holy Spirit. Did he get maltreated during that time? I'm sure he did. Because he was the one righteous person out of the entire population on the earth. God was ready to destroy them all and says, oh, there's one guy. Oh, that we'd be willing to be that one guy out of all the earth. Though all the earth 
turn from you. Let us be the one guy, Noah. And the Holy Spirit filled Noah, not only to preach, but also to build this ark and to uh, set in the stores for all those animals and receive the animals and endure all of that. He made some mistakes later on uh, in this new world that was post-judgment. But there's no mistaking here in this passage. What Peter has in mind is to dovetail us all together and help us to understand that what happened to Christ was not an isolated incident. He gives us one example before Christ going all the way back to Noah. That was a pretty dark period. Was the Holy Spirit absent? What did Jesus say? What did God say? My spirit will not always contend with men. What does that mean? It means it's still contending with men. But not always. It's not forever opportunity for salvation. But it says God was patient, long-suffering. He gave them an extra hundred years to listen to the message, the Holy Spirit working to convict and striving against them. They blasphemed him. They were unpardonable. They were disobedient. And they are now in suffering. Peter calls it prison. Now they're in prison, but back then, here's why they're in prison. Don't you be among that number. So the events of Christ are wonderful, and we want to celebrate them, we want to talk about them. That is the core of our message, but don't think that is an isolated incident. The same spirit of power was there in Noah, and it saved humanity. I've been putting it in small terms, I just put it in a large term, didn't I? Because now we find out that eight people saved the entire human race from ceasing to exist. One man's righteousness. And the seven that were willing to follow him. One man's righteousness. And so you can understand why he picks on Noah, the one man Christ saves. The one man Noah. And now he says, what if it's down to just you? What if it's just you against the world? And I'm sure for some of those who received Christ as their Savior, it felt like that when you have people turning you in. And this is what happened. Your own family members turned against you. You were turned in. You were thrown into the lions. You were thrown to, to gladiators. You were thrown to other beasts. You were burned. You were, you were maltreated, crucified. Peter himself knows that that's his future. Hence, he's going to say, when we get to 2 Peter, take up your cross and follow Jesus. What if it's down to just you? Will you preach faithfully? Not by your own strength and determination. You have to be dependent upon, Jesus Christ was dependent upon him. Noah was dependent upon him. You need to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit to help you endure suffering, to help you preach the cross, and to have life at the end of it. It is not just having a strong enough will it's not just having a high threshold of pain tolerance <laughs> that allows you to endure suffering. It is a complete dependence upon Holy Spirit as Christ depended upon him that we understand he is our role model. I'm going to suffer as Christ suffered, but that means I'm also going to have an agent beside me called the comforter. I don't know when you need a comforter. 
but I pretty much need it when I'm feeling bad. Don't you associate the word comfort with I'm lousy and you need to help me? You know, I have a bedspread we call a comforter, right? And we use it when it's really cold. I need a comforter. Put it over your head. That means I'm cold. I'm in adverse conditions. I want comfort. Holy Spirit is that person. When we are in adverse circumstances, when there is suffering, we seek our comfort not only in God's word, not only in the fellowship of the saints, because maybe there's not going to be a fellowship of the saints left. Jesus kind of intimated that you might be isolated. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I, I pray that he does in Albuquerque. But the indication is, is that there might be a lot of isolation going on. Will I preach the gospel, endure suffering, and look towards life everlasting? Not by convincing my mind, but by trusting in Holy Spirit and developing my relationship with that power, that being, that one who resides within us. This is the means by which we're going to do it. The same means as Christ. The same means as Noah. We have a historical perspective on this to develop our Christology and then apply it to ourselves. And that Christology cannot be done without our pneumatology, our study of the Holy Spirit. They're interdependent for all time. Never in a time of history did one operate without the other. That interdependence. If there's anything that should shatter us a little bit is when Jesus says, I'm going to go to my Father and then send you the Holy Spirit. That's kind of a scary time, those ten days, where Christ went to heaven and Spirit hadn't come yet till Pentecost. That relationship still stands, and Peter calls you to that. You're going to have to endure suffering. You have Christ as an example, but remember, Christ didn't do it by himself. Just You might say, well, he was God. He could endure it. No big deal. Well, you haven't read the Gethsemane account recently then. You don't listen to the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross and understand the agony that's involved in those. He didn't do it because he's God. He didn't do it because he's God. He endured it because he had the Holy Spirit in him. The same spirit that we claim for ourselves. And that's why it's so critical when we get to the writings on the Holy Spirit, our relationship with him. We're supposed to walk in the Spirit. We're supposed to be filled with the Spirit. These are things that you need to ongoingly pursue. It says don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't lie to the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't diminish his work. That we rather uh, want to put ourselves in an environment of God's word, his, the Spirit's sword, and it's not necessarily for us to use against others as much as for us to let the Spirit use against us. To cut our own heart that we might repent and be more righteous today than we were yesterday. My walk in spirit and in truth that those coincide. This is the one that we depend upon. Yes, our trust is in Jesus Christ, but to say we trust in Christ without also being dependent upon the Holy Spirit 
is naive at best. We cannot compartmentalize these two as we do so often. This is Jesus, this is Holy Spirit. Because they're like this all the time. And so when you read a portion like this, be careful to be attentive to who is where, when. when past tense, past tense, present tense. We are not advocating that you go and preach to dead people. I don't do that at funerals. I preach to the living. Because that's when you must choose. And today is the day of salvation. Jesus Christ did not go and preach to fallen angels. What's the point? Um, These are all silly things that men make to draw interests. It's really just a historical study of the absolute dependence we must have on the Holy Spirit to endure suffering, preach the cross, and have life eternal. And when we have that, we have, well, that's why this is here. We have an understanding, don't we? That's why this is here. That's why I need to think about Christ differently. That I don't isolate him and think, well, that's just a one-for. That's a one-off. No one else can ever do that again. No. It was repeated back there. It's repeated now. But I do want to share with you that don't think that though that somehow if you are in the power of the Holy Spirit and walking in righteousness and truth, that everyone will follow you. Not everyone followed Jesus Christ. Not everyone followed Peter. Not everyone listened to Noah. In fact, the overwhelming majority don't. But that doesn't stop us from suffering for them. Jesus Christ did not just suffer for those who would be saved. He suffered for all men. God so loved the whole world. He suffered for them. And that doesn't mean that everyone who yelled out crucified him got saved at Pentecost. That certainly wasn't the case. Otherwise, the disciples wouldn't have been called in and beaten and said, stop preaching this name. The fact is that there was resistance in Jerusalem perpetually. That even today, we do not advocate that It is those that have a great big following that are preaching the truth. Because what we know from God's word and from the remnant principle from (laughs) at least during the time of the prophets, if not all the way back, that that's just not the case. And we're going to find that out next week a little more extensively. uh, And when we uh, jump in and, and think of what actually was written in 2 Peter, what actually was written in Jude, was that there's a warning. You know, not everyone that crossed the Red Sea was saved. A lot of them died in disobedience pretty quick, right at the base of the mountain. Died because they were in their sin of idolatry and their sin of immorality. 
but they experience this wonderful experience. Don't think that everyone who experiences this wonderful conversion experience is a believer, in Jesus, a follower of Jesus Christ. We study that in John. We can see it in the examples. Peter's going to refer to it, and I'm sure by this point in his ministry, he's seeing the falling away, and he's thinking, you know, even if there's only seven, I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to preach. Not by my strength, not by my power, but by the Holy Spirit within me, like Christ. I want to be like Christ. The world hated him enough to kill the just one for the unjust. Are they going to hate you enough to maltreat you as well? And are you ready? When I say are you ready, I don't... Are you ready to go hide or anything like that? Are you, are you ready to truly suffer by the power of the Holy Spirit and keep preaching and not say, I can't wait till God judges you? I used to say that when I was a young man. When I was a teenager and people picked on me, I said, oh, God's going to get them one day. And that wasn't the Spirit of God. That, wasn't, that was Kirk Westlink, right? I want God to judge them. That was the Jonah sitting on the mountain under the gourd plant waiting for God to destroy Nineveh. Can't wait to watch this one. No, we suffer, and as we look in the eyes of those who are causing our suffering, we recognize, I'm suffering for you. That you might get saved. That you might have life like I have. And you can't do that in your flesh. You have to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts transform our minds, transform our vision so we can look into their eyes and see their need instead of our suffering and suffer for them. That whether they accept him or reject him, they have the testimony of your suffering that Christ will call them into account for. You heard the truth, you saw the truth in that woman's, in that child's, in that man's face, in their countenance as you cruelly treated, maltreated them and they kept wanting to tell you the truth and show you the truth and live the truth. I would much rather be judged according to men in the flesh and live eternally before God in the spirit than the other way around. I don't want to live by the flesh, in the flesh, and have this life prolonged only to find out that I've disappointed my Savior to such a point that he says, I don't know you. I never did. Depart from me. I don't want that one. And if that means that I can suffer temporarily to see Christ gaze upon me with joy on that day when I am resurrected by that same spirit that raised him from the dead, then I will gladly endure that suffering. But if being at ease here means compromising so that I don't get picked on, so that I don't get maltreated, and I want to... not defend the name of Jesus so that I have an easier life on on this earth, I have just jeopardized my eternal life. This is a a warning throughout Scripture. 
These things are incredibly important, and if at no other time in these times, when we see them marginalize, more than marginalizing, um, really bringing the Christian community, and we might say, well, the conservatives right now, yes, it's conservative people, um, but, it, but let's understand the core of that is the Christian community as the enemies of, of society. We should not bemoan that. We should embrace that and say, you think you got reason to hate us? I'll give you even more reason to hate us. We'll be more righteous than we were yesterday. We'll be more committed to Christ than we were. We'll be more vocal than we were. We will preach for the saving of your soul. If you want to make our lives miserable for that, we will endure it. We won't enjoy it. <laughs> we will endure it by the power of the Spirit by which we preach and who, by which you are convicted of sin, knowing that today is the day of salvation and God's Spirit will not always strive with men. The final days of this age of salvation are coming to a close very, very quickly. We need to go. Verse 19, he went and preached. We need to go and preach while these souls are still alive. Let's not be concerned about preaching for the dead and praying for the dead and all of that. And yes, we're going to talk next week about baptizing for the dead. Oh, that we would have this understanding and this relationship with, our, with the Spirit of God and our spirit, that we associate ourselves with Christ, with men like Noah, Peter, Paul, many, many others who have gone before us that we might have life eternal in God's presence. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the opportunity to look in your word, for the example that you've given to us of how fully human you are, have become for us, how much you suffered, and yet as a human you needed that help, that Holy Spirit, Lord, we are foolish to think that we can somehow navigate all of this in our own strength, in our own wisdom. We, too, need your help. And we know that you have placed your help in us by Holy Spirit's presence with us, and we thank you so much. We ask you to forgive us of where we have quenched his work, where we have resisted him, even lying about our relationship with him. And Lord, we pray that we might be dependent upon him, that, he might have, that we might have that power to stand fast, to proclaim your truth with the expectation of a life eternal in your presence with full confidence that as Christ suffered, we might, not alone, though isolated in this world, but with your spirit within us. Lord, we thank you for the promises of your word, for the examples of your word. And Lord, we also thank you for the warnings of your word. Help us to live in a manner that brings glory to your name and pleasure to your eyes. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.